Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is with Jeffrey Mishlove, PhD. Jeffrey is the New Thinking Aloud host and the author of The Roots of Consciousness, Side Development Systems, and The PK Man. He is also the recipient of the only doctoral diploma in parapsychology ever awarded by an accredited university, which was at the University of California, Berkeley in 1980. And between 1986 and 2002, he hosted and co-produced the original Thinking Aloud public television series. He's also the past president of the Intuition Network. This man is a legend in the world of consciousness, and when I interviewed a few of my previous guests on Gateways to Awakening, a number of them mentioned his name time and time again. And when I went down the New Thinking Aloud rabbit hole, I was surprised to see who he had interviewed, from Ram Das and Terence McKenna, to name a few, and also the way he interviewed his guests, often diving into a diverse set of topics in a deep and thoughtful way. I also recently purchased his book, Roots of Consciousness, and was so impressed with the volume of work. So for those of you who want a comprehensive guide of almost every type of modality, check it out. And so, Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, Jeffrey, you know, this was a a hard kind of interview for me to prepare for because you have interviewed so many different type of people in the world of consciousness. But I wanted to first start off and talk about some of the major themes that may have emerged over the years in the world of psychic phenomenon to start. Um, And perhaps what has stuck out to you from all the interviews and subjects that you've discussed? I know that's a loaded question, (laughs) but... uh, you know, I wanted to just kick it off there and see what was most memorable to you in your tenure. Well, when I started in this field almost half a century ago, it was a very exciting time. It was the 1970s, and we were just learning about the research in remote viewing being done at SRI International uh, with Russell Targ and Hal Putoff and Ingo Swan and uh, It was an open secret that the government was involved and uh, the CIA was involved. It appeared as if we were about to turn the corner and everything was going to change. In fact, uh, one of the people I uh, have interviewed over the years, Jacques Vallée, a computer scientist, a UFO specialist, uh, who was working on the development of the Internet at at that time. In the early 70s, the internet hadn't even been created. It was just underway uh, as a project by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And Vallée thought to himself, the internet has the possibility of dramatically changing the world. And so does parapsychology. They could both be revolutionary. And now we can look back and we can see that the internet was indeed revolutionary. Everything is different today as a result of the internet. Everything, in, certainly in modern Western countries, is different. And parapsychology has yet to achieve that potential, but it's there. It's just happening at a slower level. I can look back now over 50 years and see that there's been very, very slow, steady progress. And in some ways, you might say we know 
only a little bit more than people knew a hundred years ago, but it is more. There, there is additional knowledge. There are new approaches. There's a widespread communication amongst many different communities that are interested in, in this work. So I think uh, over the long run, parapsychology will have as dramatic an impact on our culture as the internet has had, but it will take longer. It it could be another, I don't know, perhaps even another hundred years. Wow. So what happened with some of the government studies and, you know, why has the momentum for the field of parapsychology not achieved the, the speed of growth that the internet has achieved. You mentioned that there's been obviously some evolution, but definitely not uh, the, the rapid rate of, rev- of evolution that the internet has had. So I'm just curious, you know, what has happened first with those government studies, if you can recall, and then also why has the momentum stalled? Well, I don't want to say the momentum has stalled. I think that uh, the 70s was a particularly exciting time, and we were young and and naive. But back uh, in the late 19th century, William James, the founder of American psychology, who was deeply involved in what was then called psychical research, which is a a discipline that is uh, really for all practical purposes, identical to parapsychology, just a different name, Uh, he said, this field, we, we cannot expect it to advance decade by decade as other disciplines do. Rather, we have to look by the century and by the half century. And the reason for that is because the findings of parapsychology and and psychical research have to do with the the metaphysical foundations of reality. And we live in a culture, metaphysically, that is pretty much wedded to materialism. That, in other words, solid matter, or atoms, you could say, and particles are the basis of all reality. Everything can be reduced down to quarks or photons or protons and electrons. And uh, the findings of parapsychology point in a very different direction. They say, no, consciousness itself is primary. Matter is derivative from consciousness. So That is such a huge metaphysical shift, and there's so much resistance to people thinking that way because pretty much everybody who gets a college education is indoctrinated into thinking about the world like it's a big clock some kind of a mechanism, a giant machine of some sort, And, and even people are machines rather than spirits. So uh, it's going to take a a long time uh, to overcome the uh, emotional attachment that people have to the materialistic worldview. Do you think that this materialistic worldview and this kind of over-indexing towards the materialistic worldview has a lot to do with kind of the, the shift from the the kind of orthodoxy that we've had towards religion, right? As people have kind of become less religious um, in the last century, have you seen that or or is that not really um, what you've seen going forward? 
Well, you know, society itself is like a big cauldron that's bubbling and all sorts of uh, changes are taking place. And uh, it does seem to be the case, especially in the last 10, 20 years, that interest in religion is declining. At the same time, interest in uh, what some people think of as the religion of no religion, that is, secular spirituality is on the increase. So I, I would say from a, a sociological perspective, there, there has been a, a big shift. The fastest growing uh, group in society today, I think, are probably uh, people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious. Mm, right. Yes. Uh, so I want to go back to a point that you made about some of the, the studies on psychic research. Are there any studies that stick out to you in particular that have really helped you form your opinion on this subject? Uh, we, we did have the um, Institute of Noetic Sciences on the show, and we talked about some of their research, but I think, you know, from the, from the mainstream perspective, it seems like that question keeps coming up over and over again. You know, where can I, like, where is the research? Um, where's like the peer reviewed research and how can I get access to it? And it definitely exists, but I don't think that there's a really great central repository where folks can just easily find this information. And I'm just curious, since you've spent so much time in this field, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there are lots of good popular books that uh, are out at this point, but for uh, people who are listeners of your podcast who have a professional interest in the scientific literature, I would point them toward an article that appeared in um, August of 2018, as I recall, in the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association. It was written by Etzel Cardenia, who back then was the editor of the Journal of Parapsychology. And it, it, it summarizes all the evidence in parapsychology. It's sort of an overview of something like 1,400 different published experiments with enormous statistical significance and many different styles of research, but all getting the same result, which uh, from a scientific point of view would be falsifying the null hypothesis that psychic phenomena does not exist. In other words, they're getting positive data and uh, in, it could be psychokinesis or mind over matter. It could be precognition, looking at the future. It could be clairvoyance or remote viewing or influencing um, quantum mechanical random event generators. I think really the best way to approach this is, is to have an overview of, of the field because at this point with uh, scientific research going on in the field since 1882, when the Society for Psychical Research was founded in England, there, there's an enormous body of, of research that's available. And to me, Yasmin, the, the great shame is that after 40 years, I'm still the only person, at least in the United States, with a doctoral diploma in parapsychology. 
There, there should be college and university programs and even high school programs all across uh, this country and other countries studying this vast amount of data. It's very important. It's paradigm shattering data and uh, it, it affects each and every one of us. And, and the sad thing is that when people go into denial and treat this data as if it never existed, which is the standard way it's approached in, in orthodox uh, scientific and academic establishments, we're doing ourselves a disservice because this data is important information relating to the nature of consciousness and the self. We, in, in other words, we're, there's a big gap in our own self-knowledge because this data is in effect suppressed. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's been definitely my experience kind of sitting in the business world um, and then also learning a lot about the world of parapsychology and um, it just feels like there, like you said, <laughs> there's just a wall that comes up every time any words are mentioned. And, you know, it's just super interesting just to see the level of discomfort um, with this space. And, you know, and I think it's it's just probably not uh, a popular, you know, cultural s subject and because it's something that it, we don't understand. And I think humans are probably very scared of the things that we can't categorize and rationalize and index in our intellectual minds. Um, but even, even so, it's just, it's sort of been fascinating how much of a resistance there is um, from a mainstream perspective to this work. Jeffrey, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, whether you have knowledge of the government continuing this kind of research on remote viewing, um, you know, or or anything in the parapsychology space. Like, do you have do you have any evidence of the of the government continuing this type of research? And if they have not continued, do you know why? Well, I don't have any direct information. I all I can tell you is that it would be very smart of the government if they were continuing, and and also given uh, the controversies that have occurred in the past. It would also be smart of the government, if if they are doing it, to keep it very quiet and, and not to engender a, a lot of publicity around it. So uh, if the government is engaged in this research, uh, it's maybe a good thing that I don't know about it. Right, right, exactly. They're doing their job. Uh, Jeffrey, in the book, Roots of Consciousness, which it's mind blowing. I, when I received it, I was just <laughs> flabbergasted by how you're able to put this together. Um, you start off though by saying that there are many studies on the flowers of consciousness, like what blooms out of consciousness, but not enough written about the roots of consciousness. And can you tell us like what in your perspective are some of the guiding principles of these roots of consciousness? Yeah. The fundamental principle uh, is the one that I think is common to the mystical traditions of virtually every culture around the world. And I, I could sum it up, uh, you probably heard the joke about the Dalai Lama is, is at a baseball game and uh, the hot dog vendor comes along to sell him a hot dog and he says, make me one with everything. <laughs> I have and not heard that. <laughs> Yeah. That's very good. Yeah, the basic message is that everything is interconnected. It's all one. You see, parapsychologists like J.B. Rhine coined the term extrasensory perception. 
to define ES, well, what we call ESP, meaning clairvoyance, telepathy, and precognition. And the thinking was that there's some sort of an information channel like mental radio, that there, there's some kind of magnetic or electromagnetic or quantum waves. And that's how people perceive this information. But in fact, after decades of research, we, there's no evidence of any channel of information to explain psychic functioning. There's no evidence of any organ of information reception in, in the human uh, organism. And so how, how, does it, how does it occur? Well, I think the mystery is solved when you realize that we partake of everything. It's, it's very basic to quantum physics. It's known as entanglement. And it's, it's simply the case that the, the idea that you and I are completely separate from each other. We have, of course, we were born apart from each other. We will die apart from each other. We have our own personal life histories that are very different from each other, except now while we're conversing on your podcast. But actually, at a deeper level, we're connected. You might even say we are one at, at a very deep level. Uh, the philosopher Schopenhauer referred to the one consciousness that sees through the eyes of every living creature. And, and so for me, that's the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. That's been a recurring theme uh, among all my guests as well, is this like concept that we're all interconnected and that we're not this like separate, you know, part. We're all kind of part of this whole. And, and I think that our approach to life is very different when we think that way versus when we think it's a zero-sum game reality that uh, I think so much of mainstream culture has perpetuated. So, wow. Um, so, Jeffrey, I want to talk about some of the concepts in the book. Um, you know, we're so focused on modernism and mainstream culture has forgotten most of indigenous wisdom. And so I think indigenous wisdom has definitely become more popular. I've seen sort of anecdotally in the last 10 years or so. Um, and I'm, you know, wondering like, what does the role of the shaman uh, tell us about how indigenous cultures perceive their worldview and how were indigenous cultures also able to, to gather so much knowledge um, for so long? Like, I think that there's something there that most people just are not aware of. Well, it, it's certainly the case, and you have to appreciate that uh, we've come out of a colonial era. In the 19th century, the European powers dominated. Uh, England ruled India, and uh, Belgium had a huge stake in Africa, and Spain and Portugal dominated the Latin American countries, and uh, Native Americans were basically uh, subjected to colonial rule in, in the United States. Indigenous people everywhere were treated as if they were less than fully human. They were called savages, for example, and we looked down on them. And so when the first anthropologists encountered shamans, they thought of them as being akin to uh, schizophrenics, 
Basically, they thought of shamanism as a form of mental illness that somehow was socially sanctioned in these primitive cultures. Now we understand that uh, how wrong they were, <laughs> that uh, shamans have cultivated a deep knowledge of plants. For example, let's, let's look at uh, the use of ayahuasca in the jungles of the Amazon. And uh, if you talk to the shamans who work with uh, ayahuasca or the shamans who work with peyote and ask them, well, how did your people come to learn about this? They'll tell you that well, the plants talk to us. We learn from them that oh, nature is alive, that the spirits speak to us. It is a completely different worldview from thinking of the world as, as a cold, dead, mechanistic clock. Of, of some kind. To the shamans, uh, everything is alive. Everything has soul and spirit. Everything can communicate with us. Uh, it, so these are the two worldviews that are essentially at odds with each other right now. People who pride themselves on modernism feel very proud, and in many ways, of course, they're justified in feeling proud at having overthrown superstitious thinking. I, I think we can all agree that uh, superstitions uh, can be harmful and dangerous for, for people, but an animistic worldview in which we accept that the universe itself is alive doesn't necessarily have to lead to superstition. It can be quite compatible with modern science. And I would say that there are people today who are taking a deep interest in shamanism and combining it with scientific thinking. There, there's yeah. nothing unscientific whatsoever about uh, adopting what you could call an idealistic metaphysics. Mm, right. Right. Um so I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, your interview list, which includes so many incredible people over the years. And, you know, it's just interesting because I, I, I've never actually interviewed someone who's also been, I mean, frankly, like the most prolific host in the world of consciousness. And so I'm wondering what was the most memorable interview that you've had and why? Well, uh, there are different interviews that have stood out in my mind. Usually, Yasmin, the best interview is always the one I'm doing. <laughs> at any moment. And be, because it's very important when you're doing an interview to be present in, in the here and now. And uh, everybody is um, in touch with a place within themselves where wisdom comes forth. And, and so... My job as an interviewer and your job is to bring that out of whoever we're interviewing. I can say that there are some people who have influenced me more than others. Gene Houston is one uh, wonderful psychologist who, who I've known for half a century. Uh, other people who have been mentors and teachers to me have been people like Charlie Tart, Arthur M. Young, one of the most powerful interviews I think I ever did was with Rallo May, a person wow. with whom I don't particularly have a, a lot of uh, agreement. He's a, 
for your listeners who may not know, he's considered an existential psychotherapist. He's the author of a best-selling book called Love and Will. And a person who in his personal life, to the best of my understanding, worked through a lot of deep depression to come to a more profound understanding of the human condition. And I found that uh, in interviewing him, and, and it's happened on a few other occasions, people just bring me to tears. They open up so much and uh, expose uh, their own depth. Sometimes it, it's just tears of joy, actually, <laughs> kind of feeling of uh, enormous sadness and enormous joy at the same time. Wow. Wow. Jeffrey, I love that you brought up Rolla May. Um, I read one of his books, um, not the one you mentioned. I can't remember the name of it now, um, but I actually had used one of his quotes uh, in a couple of my presentations. I think it was something like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, it's not the exact quote, but something like, um, if you're going in the wrong direction, people often tend to run faster, <laughs> which is what we should not be doing, right? We should slow down and take a moment and and disconnect to reconnect. Um, and so, yeah, I just love that you mentioned him. And I also appreciate um, your philosophy on being very present with whoever you are with and bringing out kind of the the piece of them that people can't really find online, right? It's, it's what is it about this person that, and their message really that we want to share with the world. So, um, you know, I guess, you know, in terms of why you decided to pursue this career in parapsychology and why you've dedicated, you know, what, 50 plus years of your life to this subject, like what is the, I guess, why did you decide to do this? And has that changed from thinking aloud to new thinking aloud? Well, new thinking aloud is really a continuation of the original thinking aloud series. Uh, it's just, it got reborn after a hiatus of over a decade. <laughs> uh, originally, I was like a lot of people uh, who came of age in the 1960s. And, and early 70s. I, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin and uh, had a conventional uh, undergraduate education in psychology. I got a psychology degree. But young people at the time were already experimenting with psychedelic drugs and uh, experiencing mystical states of consciousness. So uh, e even then I had a strong interest in mysticism, but I uh, pursued my academic career uh, by going into criminology. I was a criminology student at Berkeley. I was working as a, a volunteer in the psychiatric unit at San Quentin Prison doing group therapy with murderers and rapists. And it was uh, obviously very intense. It was very rewarding. At the same time, I felt very, very strongly that I wanted to focus on the positive forms of human deviance rather than the negative. It was easy to study crime and uh, psychopathology at a place like Berkeley, a great university. It was much harder to study 
creativity, intuition, mysticism, and psychic functioning. It was practically impossible. And I agonized over this for months and months. Finally, I had a dream. And the interesting thing is I knew before even going to bed on a particular day that I was going to have a dream that was going to answer this riddle that I was struggling with. Uh, how do I reorient my career? And I did. I had this dream. I uh, was visiting some friends at an apartment in Berkeley, California, in married student housing. Got there, knocked on the door. Nobody answered. And in the dream, I knew where they kept their key. I found the key, let myself into their apartment, walked into the living room, and there on the middle of the living room floor, face down, was a magazine spread open. And I picked it up in my dream, and as I was paging through it, I, I woke up with this feeling of like, Eureka, I have found it, the motto of California, incidentally. And <laughs> at that point, I, I knew I had the answer, but I didn't know what the answer was. So I acted out the dream. I put on my tennis shoes. I ran five miles across Berkeley to this particular apartment, knocked on the door. And as I had dreamt, no one was home. And in fact, these were my close friends. I knew where they kept the key under the doormat. So I <laughs> let myself into their apartment and there in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine, as I had dreamt. In the, my dream, the magazine was called I, E-Y-E. In, in actuality, <laughs> it was called Focus. And for your listeners who are in the San Francisco Bay Area, they may know Focus was is still, as to my knowledge, the magazine of listener-sponsored radio and television, KQED in San Francisco. And as I was paging through this magazine, it dawned on me for the very first time in my life that I could pursue my interests by getting involved in listener-sponsored media. So I went over to KPFA in Berkeley, which is a Pacifica listener-sponsored radio station where I live. And I said, I'm here to volunteer. And even though at that point I had my master's degree in criminology, uh, they said, well, sit at this desk. And when you hear the buzzer sound, push this button to let people in the front door, <laughs> which I, I gladly did. And within three weeks, I had learned how to produce radio programs. And I, I produced one uh, about how you don't have to be from out of town to be psychic. And the program director liked it so much, they said, well, we have a slot every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. There's a program called The Mind's Ear, and we'd like you to host it. And so all of a sudden, within a few weeks of my dream, I found myself sitting across a table from world-class experts in all the areas that interested me the most, and 10,000 people listening in on the radio to our conversation. Wow. That's what gave me the confidence to go back to the university and create, taking advantage of a 
program they had to set up your own unique individual doctoral major to create a, a doctoral program just for myself in parapsychology. So that's how it happened. Wow, that's incredible. I love that story so much. And I actually resonate so much with, you know, dream premonition because I also had led a more conventional life and also had a massive dream that shook me up, you know, and uh, basically, you know, had heard the words, remember what you came here for as I was waking up, um, which which just opened up, you know, a can of worms of of what I was here to do. So I love that that this dream was so vivid and so profound. Uh, and how, you know, I guess like the path of least, least resistance showed up for you, right? That it was just so easy. And um, I think that that feels, you know, in alignment with, with my experience of being on the path. Like things just are a lot easier when they're, when they're flowing. Um, so I want to talk about, first of all, are there any other... Oh, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah. Let me just comment on what you just said, Yasmin, because to, I want to be clear about this. I think it's important. I, it wasn't necessarily easy. In fact, it's very <laughs> difficult being in parapsychology, but uh, even the process of generating that dream, as I mentioned, I agonized for months how I was going to shift out of criminology to study higher forms of consciousness. I, and I really did. And I think that that process of really focusing intensely and wanting this with uh, an enormous intensity uh, was part of the process. It's uh, there's something known in psychology as Jacobsonian relaxation, where you tense every muscle, you tense, you tense your feet, your hands, your arms, your legs, all of your muscles, and then you can relax. And then things are easy. But uh, it's it's not just easy all the way. It's first focus, focus, focus. It, it can be quite stressful and then relax. Mm, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for for sharing that. Um, you know, and then how has how had like after you had that experience and after you were able to get that degree, did things become easier? I mean, did did you still have moments of big transitions within this journey where you felt like you had to shift, um, or has it kind of been more of a a linear path? I would not call it a linear path I've had. <laughs> Many diversions along the way. While I was in graduate school, the closer I got to getting my doctoral degree, the more obstacles were put in my way. Finally, after enormous struggle uh, and I, the completion of my dissertation, I got the degree. And then uh, I, the so-called skeptics uh, who are not really skeptics at, at all. I, I think the best description of them came from my friend Stanley Krippner, who calls them scoffers. But they launched a concerted effort to get the university to revoke my doctoral diploma after it had been granted. And uh, I ended up being libeled and fought a libel wow. suit for six years. So... Uh, after being libeled, I was virtually unemployable. Uh, <laughs> so it's been a, uh, a very um, 
what can I call it, a, a, a journey that seemed to wander all over the place. Along the way, I got licensed in clinical psychology. I learned computer programming. I set up a business in law enforcement. I became a real estate broker and a commodities uh, trading advisor. Uh, so, you know, I benefited a great deal from the fact that I became unemployable in academia and basically had to take an entrepreneurial uh, attitude towards my life and my career. Uh, wow. I can look back now at the age of 74 and say it, overall it was wonderful. It worked out beautifully, but there were many uh, stressful moments along the way. Wow. And what kind of kept you resilient while you faced all these obstacles? Like what was, what was it about you that just wanted to keep going and staying court on the course of this, of this work really? Well, um, I, it's hard to say you, you know, I guess I just had this sort of, uh, fundamental instinct towards uh, a, a mystical worldview and, um, tended to pursue it uh, every opportunity that came along. But when it didn't, there were many times when, you know, I did what seemed to be necessary to support myself. Wow. So I learned computer programming or I learned how to sell things or I learned uh, how to how to produce television programs. <laughs> That's incredible. Wow. And what was your family's perception of you choosing this path? Because I think that's also a question that comes up for kind of the the sort of like, you know, rebels <laughs> of their time. Like what did, did you have a supportive family um, or did you have a supportive network of friends um, or did you feel like it was kind of a solitary journey? Well, you know, looking back over many decades, there, there were times, you know, for example, when I was libeled, when my friends in the parapsychology community, and, and they're loving people, I'm very, have many, many friends in the parapsychology community, but when I was just libeled, almost all of them wanted to have nothing to do with me. I was an embarrassment to them because you know, who takes the time when somebody has been publicly attacked in the media, and in, in my case, in a Psychology Today magazine, uh, who takes the time to research it? Most people assume if you read an article in a magazine that says this person is a terrible person, well, maybe it's true. And and so I, I had to struggle with that for many, many years. And I had I fought a libel suit. And at the end of the day, after six years of, of battling a, 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 in the legal domain, I finally got a favorable settlement and cleared by name. But it was uh, it was difficult uh, sledding for quite a while. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, I love hearing your story of strength. Um, you know, to me, you're definitely a hero uh, for being able to, to go through that and, and not give up. Um, so that's incredible. And Jeffrey, I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the work that you've done, um, either through your own research or other people's research about our experience in this galaxy? Because I think that's such an interesting topic. And there's been, you know, a lot of controversy over the last year with 
what's actually happening in outer space. And, uh, you know, I'm just curious, like what sort of the, the themes that have emerged from that work and apologize. I know that this is a non sequitur, but I wanted to make sure that we spoke about this topic because it's something that's been highly requested from, from folks. Well, one of the projects I worked on while I was a graduate student and thereafter was uh, studying a man who claimed to be half human and half alien. His name was Ted Owens, and he called himself the PK man because he said that aliens had operated on his brain and given him extraordinary psychic abilities, and he could demonstrate these powers over and over and over again. And uh, I uh, knew that he, he had done some remarkable things. He had impressed my friends Hal Putoff and Russell Targ at SRI International by uh, claiming that he could end a drought that was taking place in California back in February of 1976. And he ended another drought, apparently, uh, in London later on that summer. And uh, so I studied him for 10 years. And he claimed that he could produce UFO sightings at will. And I worked with him he, uh, to set up an, a study, a controlled experiment. He said he would create three dramatic UFO sightings in the San Francisco Bay Area within a 90-day period. And uh, I set up a study where we use the San Diego area as a control. And uh, we had... Um, some some dramatic sightings. And then he called me up one day and he said, Jeffrey, I can feel this. It's going to be really, really big. There's going to be a UFO sighting within 100 miles of San Francisco. It's going to be seen by hundreds of people. It's going to be photographed. And the photograph is going to appear on the front page of one of your local newspapers. Well, that happened just a few days later and more. It was not only photographed, it was videotaped. And the videotape was broadcast on the Channel 9 Evening News in San Francisco. So uh, that really impressed me with the fact that when we talk about communication with uh, alien beings, it's not just little green men from Mars. It could be hyperdimensional entities who have a deep knowledge of psychic functioning and uh, are able to uh, do things uh, at the psychic level and even at the material level uh, that are well beyond uh, the uh, most advanced capabilities of scientists here on Earth today. We are part of a, a galactic community, but we're not yet ready to join that community, especially because our self-knowledge is so limited. We have to begin to understand, for example, the whole question of consciousness and its role uh, regarding survival after death. There, if you uh, look at the UFO literature carefully and the life after death literature carefully, you'll see that there are some very significant overlaps where going back into the 19th century uh, seances in the spiritualist community where alien entities show up in seances. So uh, we're, we're not going to be ready to join the galactic community until we 
have a greater self-knowledge and a greater knowledge of consciousness and its role uh, as understood in the fields of psychical research and parapsychology. Wow. That's incredible. Um, I want to go down the rabbit hole of reading the PK man and also is Ted Owen still alive or did he pass? He died in 1987. Wow. I was going to say he, we, we probably need his help with a lot of climate change issues right now uh, going on all over the world. Very hard during his lifetime to, to interest scientists and to work with the government to use his abilities for the benefit of humanity. But for the most part, um, he was the sort of person who, when he said, I can do this and I can do that, people would call him a madman or a fool or a liar. And, and he would then say to them, well, I guess I have to teach you a lesson. And, and things often became unpleasant when that happened. Oh, wow. So fascinating. So um, was when he said he would do something, was it right? What did it actually happen? What like 80% of the time or hundred percent of the time? Like, was there, I mean, even the fact that these things could happen, like UFO sightings is so, you know, incredible. Right. But I'm, I'm just curious. Well, I have in my files, uh, data on, uh, 168 demonstrations that he produced in which he sent letters out in advance to scientists saying, I'm going to use my powers to do this or to do that, and usually large-scale phenomenon, ending droughts, uh, influencing hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, uh, power blackouts, things of that sort. And uh, I would say roughly uh, two-thirds of them worked out the way he said they would. And my simple estimate is that for the most part, uh, these events had less than a 1% chance of occurring uh, by chance alone. So uh, statistically, uh, it's only a very rough estimate that I could provide, but it would be overwhelmingly significant. Wow. Fascinating. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to reading that book. Um, so Jeffrey, I want to, I feel like I could talk to you all day. This is so fascinating, but I know we're coming close to time and I just wanted to ask last few questions. Um, you know, in terms of this last year, uh, with the pandemic, um, and us, you know, slowly emerging out of the pandemic, kind of going back in, right. We're sort of coming out of it. Uh, what have you, um, you know, perceived in terms of like the future of humanity and in the future of consciousness? Like, has anything shifted your perception about how humanity will, you know, evolve in the world of consciousness in this last year? You, it could be anecdotal, right? Because I'm not sure that, you know, folks have had the chance to even run studies at this point. But I'm just curious, like, how has the pandemic, uh, how, how has the pandemic changed your worldview? And what have you sort of seen in terms of how it's changed the worldview of others? Well, uh, nobody has asked me that question so far, and it's a little outside of my <laughs> domain of expertise. I, I would say um, that it, humanity is facing an enormous challenge uh, at this moment in history. We're dealing with multiple 
problems. We have political problems just getting along with each other in this country. The two parties are practically at war with each other right now over the abortion issue, over the issue of uh, uh, election fraud, uh, which, as far as I'm concerned, does not exist. But one political party is maintaining that it does exist in the absence of evidence. we are polluting the, the planet. We're facing serious uh, problems uh, related to uh, climate change caused by human behavior. Uh, we make war. We, we've, we've just concluded a war in, in which uh, something like a trillion dollars has, has been spent, much of it going uh, one wonders what did it go for, uh, forms of corruption. So I'm aware of the enormous potential that humanity has to join, as, as we discussed earlier, the galactic community. Uh, at the same time, especially because of my background in criminology, I'm aware of the dark side of uh, human consciousness and human behavior. And my concern, Yasmin, is is that as a civilization, we don't do enough to honestly look at our own dark side. And and that may be the undoing of humanity on this planet. It's not clear to me that Uh, human civilization will survive. I hope it does. I think human civilization is wonderful and it has a a great deal to offer uh, to to the universe. But uh, we're we're kind of um, right on the edge right right now. And uh, we seem to be quite capable of destroying ourselves. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's terrifying, um, you know, especially folks who are operating in this zero sum game reality, winner take all, and um, you know, I'm wondering, Jeffrey, what do you think, you know, based on all the conversations you've had with folks, and and if you have, you know, an opinion, what do you think happens after we uh, physically leave the body? From all accounts uh, of the near death experience, uh, the uh, reports that that come back from these people seem to suggest that they're experiencing the early stages of the afterlife. As far as I'm concerned, the afterlife is very real. It's probably quite describable in terms of hyperspace mathematics, uh, just as I think we can probably uh, describe the activity of UFOs and alien uh, intelligences much the same way. I think there's a big overlap there. Uh, it does seem to me that uh, the afterlife can be a very positive and loving place where uh, opportunities for spiritual growth continue for people. On, on the other hand, there's, there's a dark side there as, as well. There are classical descriptions by Milton and Dante uh, going back hundreds of years. I think that um, I don't take those descriptions at face value. They're literary 
literary descriptions, but I do think we can take the reports from near-death experiencers and from uh, young children who experience past lives, and those same young children often describe the uh, what we call the intermission state in between lives. So we can begin to create maps of, of what the afterlife is, is really like. There are people who also explore it through meditation, uh, through the use of psychedelic drugs, through other forms of mental discipline, uh, such as uh, self-hypnosis or lucid dreaming. Uh, I think we're on the cusp of an era in which, uh, just as 500 years ago, uh, explorers came from Europe to map the new world. We can begin to map these areas of consciousness that the uh, Tibetan Buddhists have called the Bardo Plains, uh, where the afterlife exists. And um, we can think of those as continents of the mind. It's very important, I think, that we do this because un until we're familiar with these continents of consciousness, uh, we're not going to be equipped to uh, really enter into full partnership with members of the galactic community who seem to be knocking on our door if, if you accept all of these reports that are now coming out of the government. Wow, that's so profound. I mean... What, you know, I'm sort of, you know, I'm with you because I so desperately want to at least offer a gateway, right? This is called Gateways to Awakening, a gateway for folks to explore some of these concepts and to do their own due diligence, essentially, and to have their own journey. And, you know, I'm wondering, like, what, what advice can we give people to inspire them to want to make that journey, right? I think that I just see there's like, not, laziness is not the right word. Um, maybe it's like the collective hypnosis. I don't know what it is, but it seems like it's difficult to persuade people to invest time, uh, you know, and I'm talking about the mainstream, um, but to invest time in this quest of of who we are, where we come from, why we're here, and to just be open, Right. I think that's the the thing that's that's been so difficult um, in from what I've seen, and I'm just wondering, like, do you have any advice uh, for folks? Well, I think we we live in an exciting era in the sense that uh, we are now the recipients of the wisdom of every culture around the planet. Their, their knowledge is available on the internet. It's available on YouTube. I've created uh, well over a thousand videos for people with uh, all sorts of detailed information about uh, the realms of uh, parapsychology and transpersonal psychology and so, uh, dozens of uh, self-help approaches and psychotherapeutic uh, approaches and meditative approaches. Uh, so th this wisdom is is available now at a level that is unprecedented in human history. Uh, all I can tell people is that the the quest for self knowledge, which is the ancient philosophical quest that uh, Socrates enjoined people to engage in, I think he 
you you will read, I don't know if it's Socrates, but the unexamined life is not a life worth living. Nothing is more rewarding than the quest for self-knowledge and uh, the possibilities available for people who embark on that quest today are greater than they ever have been. Mm, amen. Wow. I love that. And Jeffrey, last, lastly, I just wanted to ask what sort of things have maybe surprised you the most in this last 50 years of doing this work? Well, you know, when that uh, UFO picture appeared <laughs> on the front pages of the Berkeley <laughs> three days after Ted Owen said he was going to make it happen, that was probably the single biggest surprise of my parapsychology career. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Wow. I'm going to go look that video up. Um, as soon as this is over. Fascinating. And Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. Um, you are just such an inspiration and I'm just so in awe of what you've accomplished and what you've made accessible to people in your lifetime. I mean, what a gift. And are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, um, where they can find your books and where they can find uh, access to Thinking Aloud and New Thinking Aloud? Well, you can simply go to New Thinking Aloud, all one word, and aloud is A-L-L-O-W-E-D dot com. And, and that'll take you to the YouTube channel. Amazing. Great. And we'll leave the links to the book um, and the show in our show notes. Um, so thank you so much for your time, Jeffrey. This was so lovely. It's a pleasure, Yasmin. Thank you. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the roots of consciousness and the search for answers to the beyond with Jeffrey Mishlove. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.